When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, Brandon Harvey here with this week's episode of Sounds Good, the podcast where every single Monday I sit down with an inspiring person and talk about happiness, overcoming struggles, and living a life of intentionality and wonder. This week, I'm so excited to be talking with Emily McDowell. Emily has been transforming the stationery industry since 2013 with her quote-unquote greeting cards for the relationships we really have. She's a cancer survivor, and she's the creator of Empathy Cards, a line of greeting cards for when you just don't know what to say. She's also the co-creator of a brand new book called There Is No Good Card For This, What to Say and Do When Life Is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. It's seriously so good. She's also appeared on Good Morning America, NPR, NBC, CBS News, and she's been featured in the New York Times USA Today, Women's Health, and Business Insider. All of the things that Emily has created are so interesting. So let's just jump straight into this conversation. All right, I am on the line with the amazing Emily McDowell. Emily, welcome to Sounds Good. Thanks so much for having me. This is so much fun. I am a big fan of your work, of your amazing card line, and I love your new book. There is no good card for this. Dives into this phenomenon that we've all experienced when someone we know is going through a hard time and we just don't have the right words to say. And we don't know how to respond. And I have certainly been there. So I wanted to start off by asking, what was an early memory of a time when you didn't know how to respond to somebody in your life who's going through a hard time? Oh, gosh. Um, There have been so many. And I think, you know, that's part of the reason that I knew how necessary this book was is because I've been there. I mean, I remember being in middle school and having a kid in my class get leukemia. Mm. And when he came back to school, I remember, I remember exactly how it felt because it felt like I had no idea how to be around him. Like I, I remember feeling like, like almost paralysis of like, what do I say? Like, he looks kind of different. Like, is he okay? How do I like, and I think it's, it starts so early, the fear of anything that we think of as like scary or that I now refer to as death adjacent, um, where it's like, where we've been sort of indoctrinated into, into our culture of like, not really talking about those things ever. And so when they happen, feeling really unequipped to deal. And so in that moment, you didn't know how to respond. 15 years ago, I know that you battled with Hodgkin's lymphoma. What was it like being on the other side of that experience after having, you know, at that point, a lifetime of experiences 
being on on the side of not having the words to say were there people in your life who who didn't have the words for you yeah absolutely i think you know i was 24 when i got sick and so your early 20s is kind of a weird age because you're technically an adult but you basically like have no idea what you're doing yet as a grown up um <laughs> and so you know a lot of us would say that like our judgment in our early 20s is not necessarily the best right and also when you're that age like very few people have been close to someone who was sick um like sometimes a grandparent like every once in a while a parent but like almost never a friend or like you know a peer and so it's funny because even though i knew from my own experience and just and you know being alive that there were times when I would feel super awkward and I wouldn't say the right thing or I wouldn't say anything because I wouldn't know what to say. I was really shocked um, and, and, and really sad um, when people in my life kind of bailed um, because they didn't know what to do or what to say and they were afraid. Um, like I took it really personally and I felt like I didn't realize, I didn't put two and two together. Like I wasn't really mature enough mentally to do that yet, emotionally to do that yet. And I, and I, really kind of blamed myself. Like I felt like, oh, this is happening because I'm not lovable enough. Like there must be something wrong with me. Like if I was better at having cancer or if I was like cooler, you know, people would be like lining up to take me to chemo or, you know, calling me or being there. And I didn't realize that it was just a symptom of, of what we go through as a culture that like people don't show up because they're afraid and it has nothing to do with you. Um, it has to do with, with their own fear of saying the wrong thing or feeling inadequate that they don't know how to handle something. And so, yeah, I mean, I had, I had a lot of, um, a lot of close friends and, and family, um, who just kind of bailed because they were so freaked out and didn't know what to do. Um, and I think when you're young, that probably happens even more because people are even more like scared because it's so unusual, you know, when you're young and it's like, this couldn't happen. And then it happens and then they have to kind of face that and deal with it. And so I was feeling like, you know, the weird thing about being sick is that like, you're the same person you were the day before your diagnosis. Mm. It's just that you can now all of a sudden you can't relate to anyone, you know, anymore in certain ways. But in the, then in other ways you can, because you're, you're the same as you were, like you still have the same sense of humor and you still are like, you still are yourself, but then your day-to-day -day reality has suddenly become this completely different thing that nobody you know really understands. Can you bring me back a little bit um, and tell me about your transition to starting Empathy Cards? You battled Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, and then you said that nine years later, you had the experience of uh, your roommate getting cancer and passing away, and you at that point kind of realized you had this ability to translate in a really important moment uh, for other people. Where did things go from there? Well, what ended up happening was right around the time, just after Amy died, um, I ended up, I quit my job. I was a creative director in advertising and I've been kind of, it wasn't because of, but it, but it definitely, her death kind of played a role in it for sure. Um, but I'd been working towards quitting for a while and feeling like, this was a job I wanted when I was 25 and that at 35, I, I, it was not the right thing for me. And 
I, I ended up starting my company. I, I had an Etsy shop was how it was how it started. Mm. And my first the first card I ever made and I and I started thinking about cards because I'm a, I'm a writer and an illustrator. And so reading cards are a thing that um, combine things that I two things that I'm good at and that I like to do. And then the other thing is that I had always had trouble finding cards that I felt were reflective of my own reality. Like, the sort of gushy Mother's Day poems or like the loved ones. Like I, I just would, I was a person who would like stand in front of the card aisle forever and be like, I don't know. None of these really do it for me. Like the joke ones were, were always kind of weird. Like, I, and so I would always end up just making my own thing or just taking a blank card and writing in it. But I knew that, yeah. you know, as a, as a writer, that was easier for me to do than, than a lot of people. And so actually just around four years ago, right around this time, I did my first card, um, which was a Valentine for the person that you're kind of dating, but not really <laughs> um, because there was no card like that. And I was like, you know, this is like more than half of all relationships. And for Valentine's day, that's it's like the worst holiday when you're in that relationship, because it's like, it just is an awkward situation. You're like, either I get them a normal card and then give them the whole speech. Like, Oh, you know, no, no big deal. Like I just got you this thing, whatever. Or you like don't anything, and then that's also weird because then what if they get you something and like the whole thing is kind of fraught, you know? And that's just like tr- it's true for so many people. Yeah. And so I ended up making a card that was basically the speech that you give someone. So it says mm. like it's like really long, and it says like you know, I know we're not like together or anything, but it felt weird to not say anything, so I got you this card. Uh, it doesn't even have a heart on it. You know, it's not a big deal. Basically, it's a card saying hi. And then in tiny letters at the bottom, it says, forget it. So <laughs> this like sort of, it's just really the, the text of like what we would all say, you know, or so yeah. would say when we, and that ended up going super viral and going, starting what became my card company very quickly after that, because I realized that there was an opportunity for cards for the relationships that we really have and not the ones that we wish we had. Mm. And so that's my, the tagline for our company is, is cards for relationships we really have. So I started off doing, you know, the, the sort of typical love and birthday and, and mother's day and stuff. And I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do my version of sympathy cards because I knew from having been sick that the sympathy card, um, sector, <laughs> of the card market left <laughs> a lot to be desired in that yeah. you either had like a blank card with flowers or something that felt like maybe the person's already dead. Like some like with sympathy message. That's kind of like, okay, that's weird. Like I don't, that doesn't feel like me. <laughs> and then, you know, there's like get well soon cards, which are, which are, which are like weird if you might not. Cause you're like, okay, I'll try like, cool. <laughs> Thanks. And, <laughs> And then blank cards, which don't help anyone because like, you know, the whole problem is you don't know what to say. Right. Yeah. And so, but I knew that the idea that I had was like a fairly weird idea. Like that it was a, it was, it was really doing something kind of a whole left turn with that genre. And I felt like I wanted to hold it for a year or so to see if I could build the company a little bit first to get so that when I did launch them, that there would be a little bit people would take notice of them versus just me being nobody having a card company and and launching a thing. Mm. And then I also was really wary of being, I didn't want to be pigeonholed from the beginning as like cancer card company because we're, it's a whole, the, these cards, empathy cards fall really under the umbrella of, of cards for these, for real, really of like our real relationships, you know? And 
so I ended up having the company for about a year and then releasing empathy cards. Um, and I was blown away by what happened. I mean, they were, they went, it went beyond viral. It was like, you know, stories in 300 major media outlets in 22 countries. And I was on good morning America and on South African public radio and in both Jerusalem newspapers. And I mean, it was like, it was really, really crazy. Um, and it was, you know, greeting cards, like, but it was a thing that I think that it was, it just spoke to how big of a problem this was of like, we don't know what to say. And so this was like, this was, this is an answer, you know, this helped people reach like friends and family were saying, Oh my God, thank you for making something that feels like me. Like, thank you for making something that feels like I can use this to, to, to communicate and like connect. And I can use this to, to say some of what I want to say. And then the people who, who were receiving the cards were saying like, thank you so much for making these because it, it feels like someone gets it. Like wow. it feels like, you know, this for the first time feels like somebody understands what it's like to be me and in this situation. And so the goal was to help people was that, I mean, the goal was really to help start a different kind of conversation to help make conversations easier, to have some sort of more authentic communication and deeper communication be made possible with, with a card. Um, Cause the thing that's funny is like cards are, you know, we have like, Halloween card like there's a million like how cards have become like a way to mark an occasion um yeah and a communication method right so like there's a million like Halloween cards and like Easter cards and cards for whatever but like I mean you don't really ever need a Halloween card but when like you're going through <laughs> like if you're if your kid dies or if your you know spouse dies or if you have diagnosed with some huge chronic illness like a card receiving a card can really make a difference. Like that's when it's actually useful is when it helps your loved ones connect with you, right? Like it help it, it actually can be really helpful and meaningful. And yet the selection was kind of nothing in comparison to like a, a holiday, like Halloween, which was like, you know, huh? Okay. Um, and so I felt like there was just an opportunity there to do something different. And then after the cards came out, then this book, it became super clear from the feedback that we were getting that like there should be a guide, like there should be something that exists. This problem is so big that like there should be something that is not, you know, not spiritual, like not religious, doesn't have a rainbow on the cover, like isn't going to put off people who like think they hate self-help books, but like something that's in the tone of the cards, that's relatable, that's accessible, that's even like entertaining, nothing like it existed. And I felt like it was really important um, that obviously there was this big problem that needed to be solved and that this could solve it. But I didn't feel qualified to write the book on my own, like I was saying earlier. And then I was introduced, Kelsey and I had a mutual friend who introduced us and she had all of the research end of the information and she and I had the exact same vision for what kind of book we wanted to make. I'm 24 right now and I'm actually completely resonating with what you're saying because... um, for the most part, I haven't had a lot of people in my life experience big things happening to them. Like, you know, I haven't had a lot of close people in my life pass away. I haven't had a lot of friends get sick at this point. And I know that that's inevitable. That's the way that life works. But uh, the few experiences I have had, um, I completely had no idea what to do. Um, And I 
I've said so many things where I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I said that. But I'm curious on the other side, you know, I do have a number of friends who have gone through difficult things before I met them. And those are the people that I found who do know what to say in these situations. They do uh, have a little bit more confidence in in knowing how to respond to uh, something happening in the life of a loved one. Did you feel like your experience with battling Hodgkin's lymphoma changed the way that you're able to respond to loved ones when they're going a hard time? Did it grow your capacity for empathy? It did. It really did. Um, I think it it really opened my eyes to, A, like the power of empathy and compassion, and then B, really like how little was required in order to get there, that it wasn't like as hard as, as people thought it was. Um, and then really what, what kind of set me on, on this path of doing what I'm doing now, um, was, you know, when I was, when I finished, uh, with my treatment, it was about a year of treatment. I was very much wanting to just like put it in a box behind me and like stick it under my bed and like put that whole experience behind me. Like I really was like not into the idea of having survivor be part of my identity. I really was like, let's just chalk this up to like a shitty thing that happened and move on. And I just want to have a normal life. And so I really, you know, I really did that. I really like just kind of put it away and, and really, you know, I would talk about it if people wanted to talk about it, but it was like survivorship was not a, a big part of my life. And then when I was 34, my college roommate got cancer and she died three months later. So it was a very aggressive, very quick, really intense, horrible. And all of a sudden when she got diagnosed, and this was the first experience that I'd had with cancer after my illness. So this was like, and this was like nine years later, you know, the first person who was close to me who had been sick. And I was so struck by the fact that people who knew her, like mutual friends of ours and stuff were, were asking me, what should I say to her? Like, is it okay to say this? Do you think she knows she's going to die? Like, have you talked to her about it? Do you think, you know, is it, can I, can I, can we talk about this? Like, do you think she'll want to talk about her treatment? Will she want to, you know, like, is it okay to talk about her daughter? Is it okay to talk about? And I realized that, and that was really, you know, because I, I had worked so hard to kind of put it away and to not think about my own experience and the context of anything really. That was the first time that I really realized, like, you know what, I have this experience that I have this perspective that can be used to help other people be less lonely than I was going through it when I was sick. And that the experience that this gave me and the perspective it gave me, I was being, people were sort of asking me to be like a, like a cancer translator, you know? And that was really like a, like an intense thing for me to realize. And, and it sounds so basic and like stupid, but it really took me that long to realize like, oh my God, I have something. I have this, this, because I had been through this thing that was, that was really different than, than hers, but still in the same sort of big overall bucket of cancer, it was easier for me to just drop the fear and like be with her than it was for some mm. other people. And it was easier for me, you know, I, I had, I had more compassion and it was easy and I had more empathy as a result of my, my experience. And I realized that the reason people bailed when I had been sick wasn't because of me. It was because they were afraid. 
you know, that it had nothing to do with me, that it was just, this is what we do. Like that this is a, like, this is, this is just symptomatic of like how we handle this kind of thing as a culture, unless we learn differently. And so in a way it was like, a, it was like a, it was an awful experience. I mean, it was awful, but in a, in a, in one sort of twisted way, it was a healing experience for me to realize that, to like, to realize like, oh, this, you know, all of this blame that I'd put on myself and sort of shame about like not being a good enough person to be supported wasn't, that's, that wasn't reality. The reality is that, that it doesn't matter who it is. It's that this fear is so powerful that we have that it gets in the way of like doing what we want to do. In the book, you talk about the three empathy roadblocks that really kind of stop us from uh, being able to express what we want to express with those people in our lives. Um, You talked about the fear of doing the wrong thing, the fear of saying the wrong thing, and the fear of not having time or bandwidth. Can you break those down a little bit for me? Sure. Um, This is actually, this is language that Kelsey, my my co-author, who developed empathy bootcamp workshops, um, which are these two of these great two hour workshops that she runs through her organization, help each other out. Um, and that basically teach people how to show up, um, when something bad happens. And so a lot of, a lot of the, the content of the book was taken from the curriculum that she developed and the research that she did for her workshops. So this mm-hmm. was one of them. So the, the, um, fear of doing the wrong thing is like feeling pressure to make the situation better with the perfect gesture and fear of doing the wrong thing and making it worse. And then if you fail, you feel like I'm going to ruin this relationship. Like this, this person is going to think X, Y, Z of me, or I'm going to just be embarrassed. Like I'm, I'm going to feel like an idiot. And (laughs) it's funny how it's so much of the fear around how to show up comes down to the fear of either judging yourself as an idiot or worrying the other person will judge you as being an idiot. I mean, it's kind of bullshit. Like it's kind of not, it's, it's, it's all, there's so much self-inflicted fear in it. And we really break that down in the book and, and talk about why and talk about what that's about um, and how to, how to get rid of it. Cause it's also like not reality. Like the person, there's not like a wrong thing you can do. Like, I mean, honestly, 90% of showing up for someone is trying, you know, the worst thing you can do is not, is not try. And a lot of people do this. And I've been guilty of it too, where you, where you're like, I don't know what to say, or I don't know what to do. And I don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And I don't want to, I don't want it to be awkward. And like the right words will come to me and I just don't know what to say yet. And I'll, and I'll reach out when I, when I know what to say. And then of course, like you never have these like magical right words because there's a lot of the time there aren't any. And so then more time goes by and then it becomes like more and more awkward and and terrible and bad. And then you feel even worse. And so you feel like, oh, now it's like been, you know, three months or six months. And I, now if I reach out, I'm going to have to explain why I haven't been there before. And it's just going to be awful. And, uh, and then you run into them in like the grocery store, you know, a year later and it's horrible and it feels awful for both people. You know, the person who's sick or, or, or in a divorce or had someone die, like feels super terrible and feels really uns- feels really unsupported and just kind of left alone when people turn away because they don't know what to say. And then you as the person who did turn away feel really guilty and terrible and like you don't you didn't want to turn away like it wasn't your intention to be like, you know, my friend is really sick. I think the best thing to do is just like ignore it 
and like pretend it's not happening. Like no yeah, one. Yeah, because you're you know, thinking no one... about it this whole time for months. Totally. It's not totally. Like you're you're thinking about them all the time. You're just you didn't express any of that to them. Exactly. Exactly. And so like yeah, no one goes into a situation like that. Like yeah, yes, I think I think I'm just gonna you know the best thing to do is to just ignore them. Um, yeah. You know. <laughs> so <laughs> so if you show up, like if you actually make an effort, you're ninety percent of the way there. To be totally honest. And, you know, in this book then helps break down that other 10% to be like, okay, if you're going to show up, if you're going to do something, if you're going to say something, how do you make it as supportive as possible? And how do you feel confident doing those things? Like as yourself, you know, we're not trying to turn you into Oprah. We're not, you don't need to be like good at feelings in order to, to show up and in order to be present for people. And I think there's a lot of misbelief that you have to like have some sort of, you know, emotional jujitsu or be like a therapist or be, you know, Gandhi to be on the receiving end of, of, of someone who's in a tough spot. And you actually don't at all. You just need to be yourself and you can do it as yourself. And, and in the book, we really try to help people understand how to do that, like how to use the skills that they have already and the things that they like to do already to be supportive and to feel really good about the amount of support that they can give. Yeah. And I love that. And as I was reading through the book, I'm like, this is such a practical guide. Like I learned a lot just reading it, but I'm also totally going to use it as um, like, I'm just going to pull it off the shelf next time. I don't know what to say because it's just such a perfect little uh, guidebook that kind of almost course corrects things you would say. Yeah, Like the book will say, Hey, instead of saying this thing that kind of feels like, that's what you would naturally say. What if you just shifted a little bit to sound like this? And little things like that I thought were really practical. But I was wondering if you were to just give a, you know, a 30 second overview, like what is the right thing to say when you don't know what to say? You've already kind of established that it's important to say something, but like help us, uh, help us understand how simple it really is. Honestly, all you have to say is I don't know what to say but I'm here for you and I care about you and I'm so sorry you're going through this. Really, it's the the skill of of being present for someone and being supportive for someone isn't in the talking, but it's in the listening. So it's less about you knowing what to say and more about you giving the person the space to say what they want to say and more about you being willing to sit in silence and sit in awkwardness because a lot of the time that's what it will be. And silence inherently isn't, isn't awkward in and of itself, but we just associate awkwardness with silence because we're not used to it. What about those times where it's time has gone by too long? Um, it's been months and we forgot to reach out. Should we still reach back out to somebody who failed? Absolutely. Who we failed to reach out. There's to? no statute of limitations on any of that. And in fact, you know, honesty in that way, is always appreciated. I mean, if you haven't reached out, the person kind of knows why, but either they're thinking, I mean, you, you know, most of the time it's somebody's thinking either like I was like, oh, it just means I don't mean as much to the person as I thought I did, right? Like I'm not, yeah, I'm not important to them. Or they're just thinking like, well, they're just one of these people that didn't know what to say. So they didn't say anything. And if you prove anybody wrong on both of those points, um, It'll make them feel better. It's not, there's nothing wrong with saying, like, I didn't know what to do. I'm so sorry. Like, apologize, you know, re- own the fact that you 
you didn't show up when you knew that you should have. But it's always better to come back and show up. And, you know, even years later, I mean, I had people come back to me like years later who I hadn't, who I lost touch with when I got sick and say, I just wanted you to know, like, I'm really sorry. I know that I like really messed up and it was about me, like me not being, I was just a bad friend and I, or I was an idiot or I was, you know, and I mean, I absolutely forgive those people. You know, like I have no resentment or anything towards any of those people. Um, because I get what it is, like, I get what it's like to be a human and like struggle Mm. with all this stuff. And so, I mean, I really think like if you take nothing else away from the book, it's that fumbling, like reaching out and fumbling is infinitely better than not reaching out at all. That's really good. So back on the other side of things where you're the person going through a hard time when you're struggling is there ever something that people are going to say that's like the worst thing that they could say? I guess this is a two-part question. One, what do you do when that person says that thing to you? But two, what are those things that you should absolutely avoid saying? Because I think that's still people's biggest fear is that they're going to say something just absolutely awful. I think usually when people say those things to you, it's a complicated feeling, right? Because on one hand, you're like, uh, that's kind of a crazy thing you just said. And then on the other hand, you feel guilty for feeling that way because you know that they're just trying to help and you appreciate mm. the fact that they're just trying to help. But usually the net result is that you end up feeling kind of lonelier than you did before because it's like more evidence that somebody doesn't understand. But you also feel, you're not like mad. You just feel like, okay, like, okay, like, you know, thank you for trying, but it's not, you don't end up feeling supported. But you're usually grateful that the person like tried to say something. Yeah, Um, that's good. That's helpful to know. Yeah. Um, The things, I mean, honestly, like there's a, there's no like one kind of worst thing that you can say, but a lot of the things that are, that are not good to do go against all of our instincts. And that it's, it's because in every aspect of life, basically we're rewarded for being able to solve problems. Like problem solving is a skill that we're like, if we can solve a problem, like, cool, like, I am a worthwhile human being. I figured that out. Like, I'm good. Like, look at me and how smart I am. And it's really, really natural that when someone is going through something that that you're close with, that your first instinct is to jump in and like, try to help solve the problem. And it can look in it can look really different. It can look like, have you tried, you know, I read this article about like this kind of chemo. Have you, have you thought about like, have you, do you know about that? Like, have you tried this thing? I read that, you know, you can be a vegan and like this can cure it. Like, have you thought about this? Did you, you know, there's the sort of the, the suggestion making and it's a totally natural thing to want to do that. And yet at the same time, what ends up happening is like, the, so the reality is like, the person who's going through this thing has spent, like, it is a safe assumption that they have spent at least a hundred times more than you have Googling the thing that they have, right? Like, that they are in it 24-7 and that, like, they have chosen what they're doing based on information that they have decided to act on. So you coming in and, like, making these kinds of suggestions feels feels like it sort of undermines what they're trying to do And it also feels, it can feel judging, like it can feel like, oh, this person thinks I'm not doing enough. Or you end up having to like explain why you're doing what you're doing. And then that's not a supportive conversation. 
you know, like it just doesn't, that doesn't feel good to, to try to then have to like sort of defend what you have chosen, um, to somebody. And the reality is like, this is a, the problem, any of these problems, like whether it's, whether it's an illness or a grief or loss in any way, these are, these aren't problems that can be like solved, right? Like, and they certainly can't be solved by you, a friend or a family member. Like your job is not to solve the problem. Your job is just to be there and bear witness to someone's pain. Like that's the most supportive thing that you can do is just be present. Yeah. And I feel like that's the most valuable thing to know is that what matters most is just being there. Being there is not going to come naturally. You're not going to be an expert at it. It's not going to be easy, but by showing up and kind of sacrificing and putting up with the awkward, that's a, that's a gift, you know, that real gifts take sacrifice. Yeah. That's, that's really encouraging and really helpful. That's really good. Yeah. I mean, I find that, I found that really helpful. Like that, I mean, I learned a ton writing this book. Like I, you know, if, if I had written this book after I did empathy cards, if I had written this book on my own, it would have been like a Buzzfeed list. Like it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been (laughs) anywhere near the book that it is. And it certainly would have been, would not have been like research driven and so in depth and so, and and as good anywhere near as good. Um, Kelsey, my co-author really brought so much research and so much knowledge and, and she like lives and, and breathes this topic every day. And so I ended up learning a ton, um, during the course of working on this book with her. That was great. I mean, you know, another thing, another thing that we do that's super common is we try to relate, right? Like you're telling a story of like how you had surgery and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't walk and you're in pain. And then your friend is like, oh yeah, like, you know, I broke my finger playing basketball and I totally understand because like it was super hard and, you know, I couldn't text like for a week and we know why we do that, right? It's like, because it's, because it's like in other times in life when something happens and you tell a story and you can relate to that thing and then there ends up being a conversation and it's like that, that's like a pattern that we use, a communication pattern that like Mm. makes sense in other areas of life. But in this circumstance, when someone is like in the middle of their hard time, most of the time they don't need you to come in and like start comparing your story to their story because then a, the conversation becomes about you and not about them. Another reason it makes sense that we do it is because it's a story that we're our own story is something we're familiar with. So we tend to gravitate back towards it. Like, Oh, well this thing happened to me. And like, I know that, and I get this and your thing feels really confusing and scary. We have the impulse to want to make it about our own problem as in it, both in an attempt to relate. And also because we are generally feeling really uncomfortable and weird about the other person's problem. Like we don't know what to say. And so if you have a story that you feel like, Oh, well, when this happened to me, you know, I did this and and this happened. That's a comfortable story for you. Like you've probably told that story a lot of times, or, you know, you know how to talk about that thing. And so it makes sense that we would go there, but really um, resisting that impulse is the best thing to do. And really, asking the person like how is this for you how is this how are you feeling about this and we get in the book we really get um deeper into some of the kinds of questions that you can ask and some of the some of the ways that you can kind of gauge a person's emotional 
um, readiness to talk about certain things. Like they may or may not want to talk about it, which is fine. Um, and even if they don't want us want to actively be talking about it, it's still important to like, it's just as valid to show up and, and watch TV with them and be silly and, you know, make jokes and be the, be with them in the same way that you were with them before this thing happened. Cause they're yeah. a person, you know, and a lot of the time we, when we get sick or when we're grieving, you know, you get the world sort of starts treating you as a sick person. Your whole identity becomes like sick person to the outside or widow to the outside. And really, you know, you're still you, you just also had this thing happen to you. And so that can feel really hard when you're going through this thing and, and people don't really, you know, people want to, people want to talk about the thing all the time, or people assume that you want to talk about the thing all the time, or they don't treat you the same way that they treated you before. Well, and that kind of comes back to empathetic listening. Like you were talking about before, it's important to ask that question. It sounds like, um, but you also have to be able to listen to see if maybe that's not the conversation that they want to have. Maybe it's a non-starter. Maybe it's not where uh, they want to talk. And then you get to be like, oh, well, what can I do for you? Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. That's really, really good. I think, you know, too, one of the things that we really, that we really get into speaking of what can I do for you is a lot of the time, you know, and we've all done this. I've definitely done it. Something happens to someone and you say, let me know if you need anything. Like I'm here to do whatever you need. And you mean it, like, I want to help you. But the problem is the person who's going through the thing, like, doesn't know what they need half the Mm. time. And yeah, they're so focused on what's happening. They're so focused on what's happening. They have no idea what they really actually need. Asking, even if someone has told you to do something, told you that they're here to do it, asking can kind of make you feel like a burden sometimes, like coming back and saying, actually, I need you to do this thing you then have to, the work is then on you as the person going through the thing to think about like, well, I need this and that. And that's why I'm going to organize this. And I'm going to you know do that and tell this person to do this and cover this this way. And it just becomes like kind of more work for you. And really like you're in grief, you're in, you're in hospitals all day, you know, you're in a fog, your world is upside down. Like you don't know, you know, you a lot of the time have no idea what you actually need. Um, and then one of the things too, that we really, that we really emphasize is, if you, if you give what you want to give and not what the person needs, like it's less about what you think they need and what, and more about what can I do for this person that I can give with joy. And that is something that I like to do anyway, because if you think about it that way, you're more likely to do it. Like you're more likely to actually do it, which is really important. And you're less likely to do it out of obligation or feeling like, oh, it's less likely to become a chore. Like if you're not a person who cooks and you feel like I have to bring this person dinner, like I have, you know, I have to bring dinner over and and drop it off at their house, but you are not a cook, then that's going to feel like a chore to you. It's going to feel like an obligation and it's going to be like, ugh, like, but if you are a person who cooks and you're already making dinner for your family or you love making pies then that sounds awesome. Like, then that sounds like something that's <laughs> fun, you know, yeah. but we have a thing in the book that Kelsey uses in her workshops called the empathy menu that I think is really helpful. And I've heard from a lot of people has been super helpful to them where it breaks down like 20 different kinds of skills and shows how those skills can, can translate into supporting someone doing something. So for example, like you can be good at 
crafting. You can be a person who's on your phone all day. You can be um, someone who is an organized person. You can be good at cleaning. Like you can have, just have money and be able to write a check. Like you can, like it's all of these different ways that you can show up that are in line with different skills that we all have and, and, and talents that we all have. Like, so yeah. you can, so anybody can take a look at that menu and think like, there are at least one or one or two of these things that apply to me. Yeah. And by focusing on the thing that's, that plays into your own strengths, you know, there's people who have their own strengths. And so you're actually probably not going to cross over as much if you're right. playing into something that you naturally do. That's really, really good. Exactly. And less about like what you think you have to do. I mean, I've heard stories of like people have, being overwhelmed with food and like nowhere to put it, you know, but like nothing, nothing else because everybody thinking like, cause the kind of go-to is like, Oh, I should bring food. And then everybody brings food and then, and then you're like, okay, but wait, what? Like, where do I even put all this food? Like I can't eat, I can't eat all this food. And it's, but you're, again, you're like, I super appreciate it because all these people are doing this because they care, you know? And so these gestures all come from a place of love and a place of, of wanting to be helpful. And so you as the person in the thing, I think you end up with some mixed feelings because you feel on one hand, like grateful and happy, like, oh, like, you know, I have these people who care about me. And on the other hand, you feel like, uh, and nobody understands what I'm actually going through. That's good. That makes sense. I think that now is the perfect time to transition to the part of the show where every single episode, I love to ask our guests a few of my favorite questions. Um, And my first question is this. How would you describe the kind of person that you most admire in the world? A person who, that's such a good question, is unwavering on their principles, a person who lives according to things like kindness and generosity and love as much as possible. Mm. Um, A person who is secure in them, in themselves and makes their own happiness. Like a person who is very successful at understanding that, that, that contentment and satisfaction and happiness are things that, come from within and that are not external. That's really good. Question number two is what's something that you're consuming that you love right now? Um, well, there are a couple, couple things I've been meditating every day just for the last month or so, which has really been really helpful for me. Mm. Um, and it's something that I had been wanting to do for a long time and then just like had made a million excuses for like, Oh, it doesn't what And it's like, you don't have 10 minutes. Like really? Like you really don't have If <laughs> you have 10 minutes. And so I've, I've been just making myself do it. And there's so many really good apps um, that are helpful for that. And I have one that's just called um, insight insight. Very yeah. cool. And it just has a ton of guided meditations on it. And it's like a global meditations from all over the world. And then it also has um, a timer that you can set for, um, you know, to, to have bells go off whenever. So I have a meditation that I've been doing that um, I read about from actually that Tony Robbins does. Um, oh, wow. That is three minutes of gratitude and then three minutes of thinking about and appreciating whatever God means to you. And then three minutes of envisioning some things that you want to manifest in your life. Wow. I love that. And 
it's been really lovely. And so I've been doing that um, in addition to some guided ones. And so this app lets you set a chime every three minutes so that I know when I can stop thinking about something and start thinking about something else. Um, and I like, didn't know that that existed. Like for a while I was like, just like the first two times I was like, just trying to guess, like I had the, just the timer on my phone and I'd be like opening my eyes. Like, it was terrible. It was like, and I was like, there has to be a better way. And was like, of course there's like 25 apps that do it. So yeah. Um, That's awesome. the one that I'm using is, is called insight. And then the other, the other thing, actually, I learned about this Tony Robbins thing from, um, from a book that I just read, which is, and I, I, I like Tim Ferriss. I have sort of mixed feelings about his podcast sometimes, but, um, the author slash entrepreneur Tim Ferriss, who wrote the Four Hour Work Week and the Four Hour Every the Four Hour Body and whatever all those books, uh, has a new book out called Tools of Titans, and it's like, I just picked it up. It's great, yeah, and it's like seven hundred pages long, and it's all like micro three to four page interviews with people who are really successful in their fields about the habits and things that they would recommend. You know, like tools that they use that they feel are the most helpful or like little pieces of advice. So yes, it's really cool. And I really, I took notes and I almost never do that. And I took so many notes on this book. And one of the, that was how I learned about that particular meditation um, was through his interview with Tony Robbins. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. I'm excited to dive into that. That's a great recommendation. My final question is based on the ways you've chosen to step out and live your life differently. What's one thing you'd encourage someone else to do in their own life today? We are living in a time when it's easier now than ever to figure out what to do for a living and for money that doesn't involve going and working at a job you hate. And I would encourage you, if you are working at a job you hate, to start looking at your own skills and talents and thinking about the internet and thinking about social media and thinking about all the ways that we are now connected and all of the, all of the possibilities and not letting yourself buy into the misbelief that you can't do it. You know, I'm just a person. I mean, I'm special in that we're all special genius snowflakes, but like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not Oprah. I'm not, you know, I'm not Stephen Hawking. Um, I'm just a person who got really tired of working at ad agencies 80 hours a week and felt like, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but there has to be something. And I worked super hard to figure out, you know, not just how to find that thing, but then how to build it. But what I've seen along the way and all the people I've met and all of the, and all of the experience I've had has been really encouraging in that there's just so much possibility out there that didn't exist 20 years ago when I graduated from college. It's so true. And that's, it's so cool that you've just proven that you can, that you can create something that's unique and meaningful and has an impact in the world. Um, and you get to be your own boss. And um, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic action step for people to take. Emily, if people want to keep in touch, if they want to follow along with your story, if they want to check out your empathy cards and your new book, how can they do that? emilymcdowell.com is the home for all things. Um, all of our merchandise and cards and everything is, is online. Um, the book, we you can't buy the book on our website, but we have links to 
Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everything on our site. You can also go to your local bookstore and they may have it. Um, if you go to your local Barnes and Noble, they should have it. And I am on Twitter and Instagram as Emily McDowell with an underscore at the end. Um, the Emily McDowell with no underscore is like a 17 year old girl and <laughs> hates me. So, so she gets tagged all the time and stuff. And, and her, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Emily um, so yes, I'm with. I have an underscore at the end of mine. Amazing. Well, Emily, seriously, this has been so much fun getting to have this conversation. Um, you left us with some really practical tips, some really helpful advice, and I really appreciate you sharing your story on the show. So thanks for being oh, here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much to each and every one of you who tuned in to Sounds Good this week. This week marks one year of existence for Sounds Good, and I want every listener to know how much I appreciate you. Thank you so much for being a part of this beautiful community focused on happiness, empathy, overcoming the difficulties of life, and living life with wonder. Seriously, you are all going to change the world, and I'm so grateful to have you here. This has been so much fun. This week also marks my last episode as a collaboration with the good folks at Gradient to make sounds good. I'm blown away by Gradient's support over the last year, and I am so honored that they took a chance on me. You can learn more about Gradient at gradient.is. That's gradient.is. But here's the thing. Sounds good isn't going anywhere. We have plenty of amazing episodes in the works for year two. The only difference is that from here on out, I'm writing solo. And I'm super excited for year two. It's going to be so fun. If you want to help support the show as we make this transition, I would be so honored if you shared the podcast with a friend, either in person or online. It doesn't matter. Um, Maybe you can even just pick a favorite episode from the last year and share that. It would really mean a lot. And I know I've mentioned this plenty over the last year, but giving a rating on iTunes is actually an amazing way to help people find the show. And it just takes a few seconds. All you have to do is search for Sounds Good in your podcast app and write a sentence or two about what you love about the show. Easy. And with all that said, with all those updates and news, uh, that's a wrap for this week's podcast. I'll see you on the internet and I'll talk to you next week when we get the opportunity to learn from another inspiring person. Sound good?